uh, we'll be looking in uh, the book of Jude this morning, Jude verse 11, <clears throat> continuing on in our series then uh, of this very short book, Jude 11. Uh, let's all stand together, please, as we reverence the reading of God's word, Jude 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And may God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. And remember that Jude wanted to write a book about the common salvation. No doubt it would have been a short a book, a scroll that could be easily carried around and utilized by people to help share the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But while that's what Jude had on his mind, the Holy Spirit had something else in mind because he felt led of the Spirit of God, compelled by the Spirit of God to write under inspiration that we would contend earnestly for the faith which was once, and all, once for all delivered unto the saints. Now when he speaks about the faith, he's not talking about the faith by which we believe, that is, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about so much about the faith that uh, we walk by faith and not by sight, where we step out by faith as we say it. But he's talking about the faith as it refers to that system of doctrines, the truth that God has revealed to us once for all that we call the Bible, the Scriptures. And uh, it is the Word of God that we look to as the source, the substance of our faith. That is, what we believe, what guides us in life, what provides us with what we call our world view. We contend earnestly for the faith. I don't think Jude was asking us so much to go out and argue with everybody else. Because really when it comes down to it, the only person whose faith that we can control is ours, our own. And the place where we must contend for the faith is in our own heart. Will we continue to believe that the Word of God is true, that the Word of God is inspired, that the Word of God is authoritative then, that it has uh, the authority then to determine for us what is right and what's wrong, to separate truth from falsehood and fiction. Is the Word of God the ultimate standard in our life, or will we turn away from that? Make no mistake, our faith is under fire today. We recognize that when it comes from those who are persecuting us or persecuting other Christians around the world. We see it when someone is on the news or someone is on television uh, mocking our faith, making fun of the Bible, making fun of Jesus Christ. We recognize that. What we don't always see is how much of it is coming from within the Christian faith. And that's what Jude was predominantly concerned about because he saw the false teachers and the false prophets rising among the early churches. And it was there that he was concerned and where he directed most of his attention as he writes this little book of Jude. 
That's why we call the series The Great Pretenders. Because these people would pretend to be Christians, pretend to be spiritual leaders, maybe even pretend to be preachers and prophets. But actually they were pointing men away from the truth, not pointing people to it. Got a couple of words for you this morning. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> when you think about it, that's really an oxymoron. If it's news, it shouldn't be fake. But we're long past those days. Uh, there's so much of it out there today. I, I, I started to bring up some examples that I just gave up. I really did. There's so much. It, it's hard to know these days. Uh, What's true and what's not. They say a picture tells a thousand words or is worth a thousand words. But with Photoshop, folks, those thousand words might not even be the truth. Uh, we used to hear about spin where people would spin the news to uh, whatever it was so that they would at least maintain a measure of truth. Even that's gone anymore as people are just putting out flagrant lies. Um, I really, really want to share a bunch of examples today, but I just, <laughs> I'm going to restrain myself. We've all seen the outright fake stuff that people send around to attack whatever it is or promote a cause, and sometimes for no meaning at all, for no purpose at all, other than apparently they get uh, some kind of perverse pleasure out of misleading people and seeing how many people they can get to share whatever it is that they've put out there. i tell you what, it's got so bad, I actually took my Facebook page offline this week. I did. I shut it down. I'm through. I may repent and go back to it at some point in time, but for right now at least, I'm through. I'm done. There's just got to be so much stuff and reading through it to see then what I actually want to see, what my kids are posting. They never post anything almost. Uh, what some of you are talking about, y'all don't talk much either. Occasionally pictures from your vacations. I enjoyed all of those, but I don't want to have to read through 497 fake ads to get to what you're putting on there. That's my rant for the day. I had to let it out somewhere. Did I tell you I discontinued my Facebook page? It's gone. Most scams are really annoying. That's really all they are. But some of them go beyond that. But listen, nowhere is the fake news, the distortion and lies more prevalent than it is in religious, spiritual circles today. More lies are being told against the Bible and about the Bible. Things that are being peddled as being the truth of God that are not God's truth at all. There's more fake news in the spiritual world than anywhere else. And that's saying something. You see, the devil isn't just fighting churches today. He's joining them. And he's joining them for a very specific reason. He wants to lead God's people away from God's truth. But when men and women begin to attack the Bible, uh, it is not the Bible that is found to be at fault. Uh, instead, it is those people 
and their arguments, whatever they might be, that are found to be at fault. And that's what Jude is going to be talking to us today about. Uh, and we begin with the historical failures, the faults of those in the past. And he'll bring up three examples. He talks about the way of Cain in verse 11. They ran greedily in the error of Balaam, number two. They perished in the rebellion of Korah, number three. Three Old Testament cases that he brings up of men who failed. The first one, of course, is Cain. And when Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve, he was given this name, and apparently, uh, because Eve said that she had gotten a man from the Lord, and apparently she was thinking that this was the one that God had promised. When he said that uh, the serpent uh, would have his head crushed by the heel of the one that was to come, that God had called the seed of the woman. Apparently, uh, when Cain was born, she thought he was it. Uh, she was wrong. Cain grew up in this family of believers. There was precious little in the world to influence him toward evil. He had no unruly companions, no bad crowd. He had no internet connection, no television to watch. There was... Nothing to corrupt him on the outside. We can't say then that he was a story of a good boy just led astray. In fact, the Bible says something very interesting in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. And we're told not to be as Cain, who was of the wicked one. Who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was of the wicked one. Now his mom and daddy were Adam and Eve, but he was of the wicked one, and his works were evil. That's what the Bible says. The only works that we ever see that were presented by Cain were of a religious nature. As he came and he brought the fruit of the earth, and he offered that to God as a sacrifice, his own works. God rejected it. And his rage boiled over to the point that he killed, murdered his own brother. That was Cain. Inside of him, you see, there was a murderous evil that was raging. And apparently he was under the full control of the wicked one. When he talks then and compares these false teachers to being like Cain, he is telling us that like Cain, they're of the wicked one. That they might on the outside appear to be good. They might on the outside appear to be righteous. On the outside externally it may seem as if things are going well. But in fact there's a murderous evil raging on the inside of them. Don't, they're like Cain. Uh, they're like Balaam. Balaam was a false prophet. I have to chuckle when I think about Balaam because I will forever wonder what it was like when his donkey started talking to him. <laughs> Incredible story, true stories right there in the Bible. Uh, Balaam was a prophet for hire, prophet for profit, <laughs> uh, prophet for hire. And the enemies of Israel had hired him to go and pronounce a curse uh, upon the people of Israel. And as he was going, his donkey started talking to him and the reason that he did that was because the angel of course was blocking his way and he was about to die and, and so 
God would use him to speak his word to him. Interesting story. But that wasn't the only one because he would also use Balaam, a false prophet, who instead of bringing a curse on Israel, was instead used of God to bring a blessing on Israel. And the parallel is impossible to miss. The same God that could speak through his donkey could speak through that false prophet. He did. But of course, that wasn't all Balaam did. Even though God had forbidden him, God had spared his life by intervening in such a way. Yet Balaam would still go out and teach the children of Israel how to live an ungodly life. And by doing so, they would bring God's judgment upon them. And of course, exactly what Balaam taught them to do was what they in in, in fact did. And, And God's judgment did fall on them. Balaam was a prophet for profit. The meaning that Jude has is not lost on us. It's still pretty obvious to us. Uh, Yes, uh, there are still those prophets out there who are willing to tailor their message to what will bring in uh, the most money. Uh, Jude didn't mince any words about it, and I can't either. There's a lot of guys out there this day who are really only interested in the money that God's people bring to them and what they can bring in. Their religion is false because their real God is money. Then there was Korah. Korah would lead an insurrection against Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron had been called by God, anointed by God to lead the people of God, and Korah... And his followers then began to lead people away from them and to lead people to fight against Moses and Aaron. What happened to them? Well, the ground opened up underneath their feet and apparently they ended up going straight to hell. Which would have been a pretty good object lesson to the people of Israel long ago. They were standing firmly against the Word of God and fighting against the Word of God. And in such a way then, these false prophets Jude is describing are still doing what they did. But they're facing the same end. Because you see, Cain perished under the judgment of God. Balaam perished under the judgment of God. And Korah perished under the judgment of God. That's why Jude brings them up. So as they were fighting against God's truth and fighting against God's people and leading God's people into into error, they themselves are facing the judgment of God and perhaps even the eternal judgment of God. Don't be mistaken. There's a lot of people out there genuinely deceived. I really believe it. They think that they're doing God's will. They believe it. But listen, if they've embraced a false gospel, that false gospel is not going to save them and it's not going to save the people they're preaching to. You understand, it's a serious matter. So Jude says the false teachers are like these three, and they all failed because their truth was not, that they were preaching was not true at all. And it did not deliver them or their followers from the judgment of God. Pretty obvious. Then there's the natural failures. He mentioned several of these. There are spots in your love feast, verse 12. 
While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, their clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He compares them then to several natural phenomena. He first describes the spots in your love feast. If you look up that word in Greek, you'll find that it refers to a hidden reef, a rock in the ocean that is just under the surface. And those hidden reefs and rocks were the ancient mariners' greatest fear because it could rip the bottom out of their ships and cast them into the depths of the sea. These reefs or rocks then that he describes were uh, metaphorically referring to people in their love feasts, their feasts of charity. You see, in the Bible times there was almost no middle class in existence. You were either very rich or you were very poor. And one of the ways that the more affluent Christian people could share with those who were not so affluent and, and those then who were really struggling. Because on the one hand there would be people very well off On the other hand, then in the churches, there would be many people who were struggling just to put food on the table for their families. And so the love feast came to be a way that those more affluent people could bring blessing and share then their blessings uh, with those who were really, really struggling. I mean, if you could put meat on the table for, uh, for a bunch of people maybe that hadn't had meat all week long, Maybe all they'd eaten was just uh, some kind of uh, cornbread or some, some kind of simple little food was all they had. And suddenly they were able to come to church on Sunday and enjoy a great feast that was provided uh, by the people who had more and could share. It was a great, great blessing. It also became a problem. If you read in the church at Corinth, and you saw that last year if you were here for our series in the, when I preached through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll know that there came a time when folks began to feel a little bit less charitable toward those who did not have anything. And in fact, the church at Corinth went so far as apparently to impose the policy, if you couldn't bring anything to the potluck, they wouldn't let you eat. Now, isn't that a real nice way? But that's kind of the way it became. Those who, did you not, are you shaming those who have not? Some of you have too much, some of you are drunk, some don't have not, and they're left in shame. Shall I praise you in this? Paul said, I praise you not. This was not a good thing. So it became a problem to them. And it became also a problem to them in this way. Because there were some people who put a hidden reef in the love feast. How did they do that? These were people who were inviting others to come and maybe inviting people who were less fortunate than them and and trying to feed them and bless them. But all the time, the Bible says they were actually feasting on them. Uh, They were serving themselves. They had hidden agendas. And they were using this then to take advantage of people and draw people into their web, to manipulate them and use them. Those folks would find out that as long as as they were going along the way of their benefactors, then everything was fine. But if they ever stood up against them, oh, it would be a terrible thing. But as they were leading them astray, leading them away from the Word of God and using those charity feasts to do it, they were making a shipwreck of their faith. Jude calls them hidden rocks. They're like a hidden reef. Feasting with you. 
Then he describes them as being clouds without water. That's, uh, that's easy for us to understand. In the semi-arid country of the Middle East, clouds and the rain they brought were precious. It's precious around here sometimes. Maybe not right now. Uh, we uh, might, uh, But, you know, we, we can't fuss about the rain, or at least we shouldn't. Uh, it does come, and it brings great blessing. We know what it's like when we really, really need a rain, and we see the cloud coming. We can see it off in the distance. We can uh, maybe smell the ozone in the air, hear the thunder, but it passes by and all we get is wind and dust. Now our neighbor down the way, he might get a shower, but we don't. Jude describes these false prophets, false teachers as being like a a cloud with a lot of thunder and a lot of lightning and a lot of wind, but no rain. Isaiah 55 and 10 says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. Isn't that a great passage? God's word is like the rain. And it accomplishes his purposes. These pretenders, by pointing people or pulling people away from the word of God, were pulling them away from the very thing that could make their life fruitful, that could make them experience God's blessings. The very thing then that God was going to use to make them to prosper was the very thing they were pulling them away from. He describes them then not only as spots in their love feast and clouds without water, but as trees without fruit. Again, this is a picture easily understandable because the trees that bring forth fruit are also some of the first trees to lose their leaves. And there are some that lose their leaves so early that actually the leaves are all gone, but the fruit remains. I'll give you a fine, good old Arkansas example, the persimmon tree. Uh, Leaves all gone, but the fruits are there. Now, if you know where there's a persimmon tree and you're inclined to go get you some persimmons, the first thing you know is if there's leaves still on the tree, you better not eat the persimmons, right? (laughs) It's going to make it hard for you to talk. but when the leaves are gone, you know it's a persimmon tree. You see it from a distance. You go there then, you expect to have fruit. But Jude's describing not only are the leaves gone, but there's no fruit. He calls them twice dead. Now, that is because they look dead, because they have no, neither tree or leaf nor fruit. But then he finds out why. They're also cut off from the roots. They've been uprooted. The tree not only looks dead, but it really, really is dead. It's dead because it's lost its leaves. It's dead because its fruit is gone, but it's dead because it's really dead. It's twice dead. And that's a very sobering picture that he gives of the false teachers. They have no fruit. They have no fruit for a very good reason. They have no spiritual life. He describes them as raging waves. Raging waves. When you look out over the beautiful ocean, you're often looking through the water that's so clear. It appears to be so clean and so nice. 
And you'd think, oh, ocean water, it just has to be such a pristine, beautiful, clear place. But when the storms blow in and the waves begin to flow, all of a sudden, it's not that beautiful, clear, pristine water anymore. All of a sudden, it's dirty, ugly, muddy. And not only that, but you'll find out there was a whole lot of debris that was down there on the bottom, that was there all the time. You couldn't see it, didn't know it was there. But when the big waves start crashing in, all of a sudden the debris comes in with them. And in fact, people who live along the coast will tell you that every time a big storm blows through, they go down there to see what the ocean brought in on the storm, what, what came in on the storm, what was on earth down that was underneath that you couldn't see. And so when Jude describes the false teachers, he describes them as having actually, though they might look pretty good, they have an amazing amount of debris. And sooner or later, sooner or later, they're going to bring that bad stuff up. They might tempt you uh, with those little nice little waves that just sound so good and peaceful. But sooner or later, the debris will come up. He describes them lastly as wandering stars. One of the most important navigational tools available to the ancient mariners were the stars. They set their courses by them and determined how far they had moved in any given day by the stars. Most famous of the stars, of course, is the north star, Polaris. When you learn to identify Polaris, you'll always know which way is north. If it's a cloudless night or uh, you can see, you'll always know. It never, you see, varies from its position in the north. It never becomes east or west. It is always north. We can imagine what it must have been for Jude to describe these false teachers as being wandering stars. We also know something about the nature of stars, and that is when they collapse on themselves and degrade, they are finally uh, will go from being a supernova. If they were large enough then, they'll become a black hole. So that not only uh, are they devoid of life, but they begin to suck out all the light that's around them. I'm not sure that Jude knew about black holes. I doubt that he did, but I guarantee you the Holy Spirit did. <laughs> and so he might have known more than even Jude knew uh, when he was writing to him that under these false teachers, wandering stars, he calls them, there is reserved unto them the eternal blackness and darkness. Certainly, he would speak of these great pretenders as headed for a place we know called hell. By contrast, I want to close out this morning talking to you a little bit about what the children of God have available to them. And in a way, what we lose if we allow the false teachers to turn us away from the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints... So let's just remind ourselves what we give up if we follow the false teachers where the pretenders are described as hidden reefs. Believers are called living stones. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, you also as lively stones, living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He describes the stability then, the strength that comes to believers so that we can be joined then with other believers and be built up into not a physical house but into a spiritual house that will stand the test of time 
and stand against all the winds of doubt. Believers are not hidden reefs. We're living stones. The pretenders are clouds without water. But believers are rivers of living water. John chapter 7 and verse 38, Jesus said, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The pretenders are trees without fruit. But believers are described as being fruitful branches. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 5, I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. The pretenders then are raging waves of debris. But believers are peaceful waves of righteousness. Isaiah 48, 18. Oh, that thou hast heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness is like the waves of the sea. The pretenders are wandering stars of darkness. But believers are shining stars forever. Daniel 12 and 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Like Moses of old then, Jude is putting before us the way of life, the way of death, the way of blessing, the way of cursing. I think as believers in Christ, we all instinctively know and understand that it is when we follow God that we can expect to be blessed, that we can expect to have His righteousness, expect to be a blessing to others. When we follow His truth and stand for His truth, we know, perhaps instinctively, that God will use this, God will bless this. But God gives us His yes and amen. Upon our life. But oh how tragic it is. And we see it more and more every day. As more and more believers. Turn away from the faith. Turn to the false teachers. And many who give it all up. All together. And turn away. Rejecting the Bible. Some even rejecting the very idea of God. Oh, but can we not see, put before us so plainly by Jude of old, this is the way of blessing, walk in it. This is the way of cursing, don't go that way. This is the way of life, follow it. This is the way of death, reject it. Contend earnestly for the faith. Brothers and sisters, your faith is under fire. Mine is too. Let's listen to what Jude says. Contend earnestly for it. And watch out for the counterfeiters who'd lead us astray. Let's stand together quickly.